Welcome everyone to Science Society today and in the future for future listeners. And of course, a special welcome to you, Francesca. And before we start, let me give the audience, let me try to give the audience a brief introduction because there's so much interesting things to mention about you and your work that it's kind of hard to condense it down, but I'll try the best. So Professor Francesca, Jacopi, she's a professor of nanoelectronics and nanophotonics and a distinguished lecturer at uh, the School of Electrical and Data Engineering um, uh, and the Faculty of Engineering and IT at the University of Technology, Sydney. And she is the group leader um, of the Integrated Nanosystems Labs. I shared the website. and. Um, She's the chief investigator at the RC, ARC Center of Excellence in Transformative Meta Optical System, and also associate investigator at the ARC Center of Excellence in Future Low Energy Electronic Technology, and um, she and her lab uh, do really interesting research in enabling nano devices and integrated systems with ultra low energy consumption with I think it's really uh, important minimizing all the en energy use and also minimizing thermal and mechanical and electrical losses um, in those um, systems and um, her lab was awarded that's my watch spying on me. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm not sure I understand. Oh my God, shut up. Um, and she, they were the recipient of Global Innovation Award at the World's Tech Connect Summit in Washington. Um, and I could say, as I said, many, many more, uh, mentioned many more things, but um, she did her um, uh, Masters in Physics at the uh, Sapienza University of Rome and her PhD at the University of Leuven in Belgium. And welcome and thank you so much. It's such an honor having you here. And if you could tell us a little bit about how you came, became a scientist, like how did you discover this passion and, you know, this, this great ability of doing this wonderful research? Was it a childhood dream or something that came later? First of all, Katerina, thanks for having me. Uh, I think it, it would have been nice of course if I could be in the in the clubhouse and, and see new people. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll do like that at the moment. Uh, I'm sure we'll be there. We'll, we'll still have a, a nice discussion. Um, so how how did I become a, a scientist? It, it wasn't a straightforward line, I don't think. Um, I think I, I changed my mind quite a few times <laughs> all through high school. Um, I was very, very interested in uh, astrophysics, really, from a very young age. But I thought I hated mathematics, which is quite a, kind of interesting because it's, it's the basic of, base of what, what I do is based. Um, so, um, you see, just, just given a, I use this example a lot when I teach because, um, you know, particularly with, with, the 
girls and you know they sometimes you might have this you know because you don't have the, the same engineering mind sometimes as, as boys you might think oh you're, you're maybe not suitable for that but actually no that's that's not necessarily true uh it's it's quite a lot of you know quite a lot of people can bring in important contributions into into stem um so yeah uh in the end um I was inspired by a teacher at high school. That's how I, I, I started really loving mathematics, loving physics, and I got into physics. So I got into physics um, and uh, I was working in CERN at, at, and so for in particle physics, something really different from what I'm doing these days. And then little by little, I, I, I developed an interest towards uh, microelectronics because microelectronics was also part, a very important part of what we were doing in CERN for the detectors. And uh, so microelectronics, uh, miniaturization, the materials and processes that enable miniaturization. So uh, all of the, the, the things that go around how to make systems that are very powerful, that can do so many different things, like these days the phone, smartphone, how can we make that even more powerful, even more accessible for everybody and uh, and how to make some potentially, you know, of course, how can we make some of the medical devices also portable and accessible to everyone and, and what can materials do for that? So this is basically a little bit how my <laughs> my uh, 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 path towards, you know, what, what I'm doing these days has developed, but it, it wasn't just an enlightening from one day to another. It's been just a very long path. Yeah, thank you for sharing that um, that insight. And I'm so glad you stick to it, um, you know, no matter what the, the typical image was of, you know, um, who should be an engineer and um, who has the right mindset because now you did this wonderful and an amazing work and we get to talk here um and you get to represent women in such a in such a wonderful way so um yeah it's a wonderful positive story <laughs> that we got to hear today and um and then if you could bring us to uh, the research we are talking about today i know you do many other uh projects that are also really, really interesting. But um, yeah, if you could bring us to this project and how it came about, how you came maybe to work on this and be uh, become interested in it and, and, and how um, was it easy to get funding for it um, and to find, you know, good team members and collaborators, whatever peek behind the curtain you have. Thank you. Sure. So this is a good story um, because this also took a while <laughs> before developing. And the way it started, it was a bit out of serendipity, to be honest. Um, when I came to my university in Sydney, one of the first meetings we had uh, was a meeting where uh, my, my good collaborator these days, so Professor C.T. Lin, um, was also attending. And normally I wouldn't get to talk to him, you know, in, in normal circumstances because I, I'm an electronic engineer, he's a computer scientist, we belong to different different schools, different, you know, different type of conferences, so we would never come across. 
but, for, but out of serendipity, we did come across. And um, I think after a talk that I gave, uh, CT approached me and he started talking to me about his work. He's um, He spent his whole career, he's, he's a senior professor, and he spent his whole career about understanding what he calls these brain waves, so this collective um, neuron oscillations from 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 the from the brain, and uh, but but of course from the point of view of really interpreting them and 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 uh, from the algorithm point of view. So he's developed a lot of algorithms um, and refined algorithms based on his fuzzy logic approach. Uh, to get more and more accurate systems for for the interpretation of, of brainwaves, and and of course he knows how to use it. And he talked to me about um, the capability of using brainwaves and EEG to actually do uh, brain machine interfaces. And at the time, honestly, I was very very intrigued because I thought he was still in the in the in the area of uh, you know sci-fi. I, I didn't and. And, and that happens to me these days when I talk about my work that people still ask me like, is that really real? Is that, is that true? And <laughs> we can't really <laughs> comprehend how. And so yeah, I was very intrigued by the, his work and I said, yeah, absolutely. If we have the chance, I'd like to to try and use our material uh, platform to to make to, to to use it for sensors. And he, he told me that one of the bottlenecks for them it was the sensors, the fact that uh, dry sensors are usually not very very accurate. And uh, and I thought, well, we're working on graphene. Graphene has a lot of really interesting properties. It's very biocompatible. You know, there could be some very conductive, and uh, there could be something there. So I, I really wanted to. I was very intrigued by what he was doing. But that was seven years ago. Now that we really started working on that seriously, uh, of course, on a very thought exper uh, ex experiment basis, we, we did that early on. But um, that when we started seriously working on that, it was only basically when we started having funding for it, which took quite a while. So in Australia, we had uh, this um, interesting call for um, this was a defense is basically the project is for defense and uh, the defense group is very interested to develop these brain machine interfaces based on wearables for for their own operational uh, um, needs uh, and and the case study was indeed this, this robotic uh, dog platform that we use in the, in the second paper that I shared um, and um, yeah, so basically it's from the time we, we put in the, the application to the time that we actually got it uh, awarded, I think it was more than two years. Uh, it was a long process, so it, it was really, but yeah, we persevered. And um, so the, the, the team was already there. So his team and my team, we were already formed, but we never worked together. So what what was really great in this um, in this project was really coming together from these completely different perspectives. So I work with very small things, <laughs> very small, you know, one component, one transistor, one you know, very 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 uh, uh, pointed and very very uh, small systems. And he he and his team work from a full system perspective, and from algorithm computer science. So there was a long way to bridge, 
but we've been able to do it and it's been great to see that also for, for the people in my team and his team to kind of come closer and closer together as we as we progressed. Uh, it's been really, really good. And of course, I got extremely interested in neurosciences. And although I never had a neuroscience course toward, you know, in my past, uh, I studied so many different things, but never that type of area. Um, I just uh, got the COVID period to catch up with that. <laughs> so I used it to, 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 yeah, to learn as much as possible with formal and informal ways. And, um, and that was particularly important for me to do that and also use that knowledge and in, in basically, uh, um, for, to further the, this, this, you know, merging of our two teams from, from computer science to, uh, to materials and, and devices in, embedded in, in the, the application of neuroscience. So it's, it's been extremely rewarding. Um, and uh, it took a, a long time, it took a lot of effort, but I say it, it was worth it. And, uh, and we're also happy that we got, we just got another funding for another three years. So we'll be starting that quite soon, mid-year probably. And, uh, and that's really another challenge because we need to basically scale up, um, understand some of the problems a little bit more into details, but also scale up the production of these sensors. And that would be an, a, a whole other level of, uh, of challenges, of course. And, uh, but we're looking forward to that. Wow, uh, that is a, a really interesting path. And I'm so glad you met at uh, the conference and get to speak and, um, and because I think it will be for sure interesting for the fans and save a lot of lives there that people don't have to directly maybe go into combat, but also I think for people with um, paralysis and so on, I think this will be a really groundbreaking uh, technology to use. So, and I'm glad to hear you got um, more years of funding and you're thinking about scaling it up. Um, so if you would like now to go into your research, we are really curious to learn more and then we'll um, ask you a few questions about it. Thank you. Sure. So uh, I was thinking uh, to start with, um, so the first paper is the basically the, the basic one where we started. So it's called, it's, um, it's appeared in the Journal of Neural Engineering 2021. And uh, so this is historically our first in this uh, area. Um, and uh, we explain, if you go, for example, to figure number three, we explain how uh, we developed the sensor. And in fact, so again, remembering that this is a wearable sensor is we're not using um, implanted systems at all. So we're just uh, using EEG principles. And of course, uh, there's a, you know, there's a level of complementarity. There's a lot of people, a lot of colleagues of mine that are using instead, they're developing um, implanted sensors. And I'd say, I mean, it, it's not the one is better than the other. They just do different things. Um, but from a point of view, so one is more precise, it is inside the skull, so it can really act on, on a few neurons rather than millions like we do outside. Um, 
principally, well, my my um, collaborator was really a, a, um, an expert of EEG signals, so that's naturally how the way we went. But to be honest with you, also the other thing is that we were looking more at also the um, large scale, you know, uh, consumer uh, uh, and and getting getting this out as much as possible in the wild public. And of course, the implant the implanted sensor wouldn't be that that's that covers a completely different space. It would be more for people that are impaired that really need uh, uh, their 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 sickness. So they they would trade off having uh, uh, an implant and surgery for improving their quality of life. Now, so coming there, so these are basically dry uh, um, sensors for EEG. Uh, the EEG sensors in the, in the hospital, in fact, already work very well, and they are still the the kind of the gold standard for us. So, in print, in fact, what we're doing, we are trying to make that uh, system portable by developing dry sensors that are, you know, as good potentially that. So aspirationally, can get as good as those that are used in a clinical setting. So uh, the uh, silver chloride uh, wet sensors are are working well, but they are they work with gels, and working with gels means that the gels after a while they start drying, they dried up, and because of that, of course, we start losing contact. Uh, the resistive contact with the skin uh, uh, degrades. And it becomes, yeah, almost impossible to redact. Um, so dry sensors, on the other hand, as a general rule, they don't behave; they, they are not as good as those sensors, but can be portable. But of course, in order to be to achieve a, a, a decent accuracy, um, we would like to have sensors that are much, much better. They can make a leap compared to the current dry sensors. And this is where the space that we're, we're basically uh, filling in with this graphene uh, uh, on silicon sensors. So uh, as you see the B, this is how the sensor look like. Um, the kind of grayish part here, you see highly doped silicon. So this is silicon. I, I, so my, my whole career has been around silicon. So that's where we started from. Then we have a thin layer of this material that is called a silicon carbide. It's also a semiconductor. And importantly, we use that silicon carbide as a source and template for, for graphene. So we can grow graphene directly on that silicon carbide. And the advantage is that um, we can control that growth very well. Uh, the graphene adheres very well to the silicon carbide. And this will have consequences that you'll see later. And so we can create very, very robust uh, 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 sensors, but very simple ones. So basically, the front side here, the green part on the top, there will be graphene. The graphene is in contact with the skin, and we tested it first on the forearm, and then on, on the forehead. And then you'll see in the, in the last paper, we, we put it on the, on the, on the back side of the head. Uh, then the, the connection is actually very, very simple. We have a carbon tape in this in this work here, so conducted carbon tape. Really, you can't think of something simpler. Of course, we we, we can improve that, uh, but at the moment, the, the uh, this what was what we used for the demonstration. And then a metal pin button, and you can see that on in the number in the A uh, figure how they look like. So on the front, you have the graphene. 
Of course, you don't see the graphene, you see the silicon covered underneath, but that's the graphene on the top. And on the bottom, you have the pin button. The pin button clearly then connects into the socket of the helmet. Um, so let's perhaps go to the next, to figure four. This is where we tested uh, these sensors. And we also kind of benchmarked them with uh, what is available at the moment in terms of dry sensors commercially. Um, so you can see here in the B, uh, the other sensors, the commercial sensors that we use are this kind of pin sensors. This is gold, gold pins. Why are they pins? Because in the areas where the scalp is hairy, of course, you want those pins to reach through the scalp, the, the, the hair to the scalp. Then uh, there is another type of sensor, which is we call the foam sensor. So this is a, a conductive foam uh, uh, encased, and that also basically can create a relatively okay contact with the skin. And then our sensors are the, the ones on the bottom here. Um, so you can see that, um, so this is the beauty of graphene. Uh, graphene is, uh, if you can use it and integrate it in a proper way, there's a lot of really interesting properties that you can take advantage of. Uh, as I said, one is the biocompatibility, the high conductivity, because graphene, even though it's really, really thin, can be extremely conductive. And not only, but also the fact that it's a layered material. And you'll see in a moment what I mean. Um, so if you go to C, uh, so the impedance with the skin is very important. Of course, that's what we're after. We really want to drive this impedance with the skin down as much as possible. So typical impedances for, for the wet sensors would be around perhaps 10 kilo ohms, uh, perhaps even less. Uh, so you can see that we start pretty, pretty high up here, um, 400, right? Kilo ohms, so that's a lot. But interestingly enough, if you see how is, you, you can notice how uh, after a number of sequential tests we did on the forehead, this number goes down pretty drastically. Uh, if you look at um, both, you see the, the 50 hertz and the 100 hertz. They start pretty high, one from 400 and 300 kilo ohms, and they go down to even below 100. And then it becomes really stable. So that really was interesting for us. And we also did a, a, a like a break of uh, contact. You see there's 10 minutes of air exposure to just see what happens once it's exposed to air. Do we get back to the same type of value? And you can see that after we prime them with the contact with the, on the skin, actually the air exposure yeah, uh, uh, degrades a little bit, but then we can recover quite quickly again the same stable values. So we were really intrigued because this is really important. We really want to drive down the values of impedance as much as possible. And so we looked also, there's another, another aspect was uh, you know, in contact with the skin, there's a lot of different things that, you know, the skin has a lot of different components uh, on, on, on the surface. One for sure, or clearly, would be the sweat. Um, and if you want to use sensors in a very reliable way uh, for soldiers, for example, that are in the field for a very, very long time, potentially under the sun, particularly if you're in Australia, you can imagine, it will sweat a lot. So. What is the resilience and, and the reliability of the sensors in the in, in that type of environment? And you can see that in D. So in D, you see that actually, uh, when this is basically, we, we, we first soaked 
the, the sensor into saline solution. And then we tested it. And you can see that this is the beauty of graphene. When graphene is intercalated with ions, it becomes even more conductive. And it becomes, and, and, and you can see a similar trend. And this time, when you get down to the stable values during the measurement, you can get down to even five kilohomes, which is extraordinary. Um, and in this case, of course, the, the, the uh, sensor has been soaked, but it's not like in the case of the, of the uh, so, um, uh, silver chloride um, sensors where you have actual gel in between the sensor and, 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 um, and the stop. In this case, you just have like a very, very thin film of moisture enough to drive down that impedance that quickly. So this was really, really interesting. And of course, we wanted to understand more because there's a lot of things to be understood. What really, what happens here? What is really happening? We have some general idea, but of course, there's a lot of the mechanisms that we are still figuring out. So we did uh, a little more uh, uh, investigation. We did some chemical analysis. Uh, we try to, of course, with XPS, that's in the next figure. Uh, XPS is not necessarily always the best method because, of course, sometimes when you fit those peaks, uh, you can have some ideas, but it, quantification is really, really complicated. But we did see that there was a change in the type of moisture that we were absorbing at the very surface of, of, the, of the graphene before and after the exposure to the skin. And basically, with that information and a little bit more investigation, we found out that the hydration of, this, of, the, of the layers of graphene was really the key part here. And what happens? So graphene, if for those of you who are familiar with graphene, this is really a very, very thin, atomic thin layer made all of carbon, carbon atoms, uh, all arranged in, a, in an hexagonal uh, 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 matrix. Um, it's very conductive and it's very, um, when it's perfect graphene, it's also very unreactive, so very low surface energy. That means usually that it's very hydrophobic. And this is what we see. Uh, so if you look at, at, at figure 6a, so where you, you see on the top view, the contact impedance versus sequential tests. You can see that when you start off from the, those 400 kilohomes, uh, if you do a contact angle measurement on that graphene, you will see, you will find the hydrophobicity, which is typical of graphene. But the interesting fact is that after a few sequential tests, when we are decreasing dramatically that contact impedance, and, and by the way, you don't have to pass any current in order to do that. All you need is to put the graphene in contact with the skin. You can see that the hydrophobicity becomes all of a sudden hydrophilicity. So we go down from a, a, a contact angle with water of about above 70 degrees down to about 30, 30 something degrees. So this the material is becoming hydrophilic just by the fact that it's in contact with the water. Not only that, we also notice that this effect is different depending on the what we call the grain size of the graphene. So our uh, process uh, yields quite a small grain size. So typically we are below 100 nanometers of, uh, of grains in, in our graphene. Uh, so what we did is 
is uh, we, we looked at another uh, um, type of graphene that is uh, uh, um, produced in a completely different way and comes as a flake. That graphene would have, so that's what we call here the large grain graphene. That graphene would have like more than high, larger than one micron uh, size grains, so really much bigger. And, and basically what happens there is that, yeah, we have a little bit of the same trend, but as you can see, that trend is much more reduced. So that reduction of contact impedance upon contact with the skin is not as flagrant, as not as, as impressive as what, and as what we get onto our graphene with small grain sizes. So definitely we thought, okay, the grain sizes must play an, an important role here. And, and well, it's not, it's not a, 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 a you know unthinkable. The grain sizes, of course, are is where you have dangling bonds, where the uh, uh, the material is most reactive, and something must happen at the grain sizes when you put the graphene in contact with the water. So potentially, what could be happening is that we we are kind of functionalizing those grain size, those grain boundaries, with somehow with uh, uh, OH uh, groups or with, with some uh, through, you know, the mechanism I'm sure is quite complicated and we're still looking into that. But certainly what happens in the end is that we will have a lot more OH groups all around the, the brain boundaries of the graphene and those OH groups will attract like a boundary layer of water. Not only that, but when you start functionalizing and attracting uh, and making the material hydro hydrophilic, it is also much easier for the different layers of graphene to uh, to be uh, intercalated. So we can intercalate that with the ions from the salts that are present in, in the, for example, in the sweat. And thanks to that, it will become even more conductive. So this principle is very important because probably it would not work as well if you had really the ideal graphene with really incredibly large grain sizes that a lot of people are working with. Um, so this is an area that is really interesting and we're working more with collaborators is now these days to understand a little bit more the, the, you know, the different steps and the different mechanisms that are around here. But uh, we think that this is really one of the fundamental uh, uh, um, things that graphene brings to the to the to the table is that not only is biocompatible, not only it is uh, uh, conductive, but this uh, uh, synergetic work with with the skin and, and and contacts on the skin is is really what makes a difference. And it basically, I, I'd say usually I say that we can uh, reach a kind of semi-dry uh, sensor. Uh, uh, approach by using graphene, because in fact we are intercalating with a with a tiny boundary layer of water, the layers of graphene, and uh, and of course that reduces a lot the capacity component when you are in contact with the skin. Hence, the impedance will be much much better, will, will be strongly improved, which is what we see. So basically, we can work with dry sensors in a semi-dry way if that's uh, that, that's what basically I, I'm, I'm trying to convey here. And that's really something that graphene, only graphene can bring to the table. Now, if we go to figure six, um, 
this was just to as a quick test like a sanity test to understand so we, what we did we put uh we had a uh, full helmet from from our collaborator and we with those different uh, uh, channels as you can see here in b uh the two frontal channels here uh we decided to swap them and just compare so we used our graphene sensors flat um, on, on the frontal, on, on, on the forehead. And this is, so channel one and two, this is what you see here in C, the top figure. So these are the um, epitaxial graphene electrodes and that's the signal. So don't worry about the signal, this is just a test that we were doing as, as internal comparison. So there is not, not, not a particular meaning uh, behind this, this signal. Then we swapped that with the pin electrodes that I mentioned before, the ones with the gold pin. And then we swap that with the foam electrodes, which are the other electrodes that I, that I showed before. So as you go from top to down, you can clearly see that you lose more and more detail in, in the type of, in the spectrum that you're resolving from the biopotentials. And this is really important because if you have to run a, a classification uh, algorithm on, on the on the uh, extracted biopotentials, you can understand that you are going to be much more accurate but by working with the with the spectrum that you have on top here, rather than the one in the middle or the one on the, on the bottom where you have a lot more less definition of the spectrum. So that is the principle. The better the contact, the, the lower the impedance, and of course there's a lot more, there's signal to noise and other things, but impedance is really one of the key parameters that we are after. So basically, uh, yes, that what we found is that graphene really, really helps to obtain that type of situation that is not completely dry, not a completely dry sensor. And I know that some people call semi-dry something a little bit different. So semi-dry is maybe not the best definition, but basically you, you got the picture is that graphene is able to create these thin boundary layers of water and reduce the impedance. So this was our very first uh, uh, demonstration done with uh, with these flat sensors. And this is just yeah, to show the, cap the capabilities and, and have an idea of what we could do. Uh, now, more recently then, we, we continued working because I mentioned our aim was to use this as BMI, uh, the sensors as BMI sensors. And then, of course, it becomes a little bit more complex because so those previous sensors, of course, for the forehead are very good. So if you're thinking of, you know, um, looking at cognitive states, um, monitoring thinking processes and, and that type of, of thing, those sensors already work very well, those flat sensors of, of the first paper. Uh, however, if you're going towards BMIs, uh, it becomes a little bit more complicated. And so you can go now to the second paper, which is the most recent one, just came out, came out earlier this year, 2023. And this is where we actually show the whole demonstration into the BMI. And, and this was extremely exciting because, yeah, we were really able to see the result of what we were doing, which was, uh, you know, it doesn't happen often in, in, in in a whole career sometimes. So this was, I was personally very, very excited. And of course, all, all the members of my group were extremely uh, uh, happy about what we could do together with our collaborators. So um, what's the idea here? Um, I will jump all of the introduction, but yeah, maybe 
Um, so we can start from the abstract, the, the pictorial abstract, sorry, the, the figure. Um, so the MIs, um, I don't know how many of you are uh, familiar with the concept. I'm sure if there are some neuroscientists, you're very familiar. If there's people, if there's people that are experts of other areas, may not know necessarily how that works. But so uh, I might have to do a very very quick, quick introduction. Uh, so BMI is based on wearables, so EEG. They basically use the EEG signal, which is as I said, is a product. Is, is produced by is produced by the the collective oscillations of neurons, and we're talking about ten tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe million millions of, of neurons. So really big population. And the way it works is that we we do not read thoughts, and I I always said that because sometimes I get some some people commenting that they are really scared. <laughs> knowing that we can read thoughts, but we can't. So we're, we're very safe. We're very, you know, down the road, potentially, we might at some stage get there. But at the moment, we are absolutely very far from that. So this is a process that happens in a, according to a certain protocol, and the person has to be totally willing to, to participate in this uh, BMI system, because the, the, per, the, the user has to make a, a conscious choice that has to be transmitted to the robotic platform. So how does it work is if you look at, if you see this little the picture on the abstract, um, and there is a bigger one later on, if you want to see that, that look at that one. Um, so there is a helmet and there is a, a, a HoloLens, a visor on the, on the front that the, the user has as well. Um, the user is fed a visual clue because we are using a SSVP, so steady state visually evoked potential. So it means it, the, this BMI system has to use a clue. A clue could be visual, could be also auditory, could be different things. We chose to go with a visual one. So that's why we have a HoloLens. Now, because it's visual, we have to collect the signals in correspondence to the visual cortex. And now the visual cortex is on the back of the head. And this is where the complication comes, because it is quite, quite, you know, relatively straightforward to collect signals from the forehead, because the forehead is, you know, is, is flat, relatively flat, is, is um, free of hair and, and such. But when you have to go on the back of the skull, that's a different situation, because you have, have hair and the scalp. The, I mean, the skull itself is very, it has curvatures, sometimes really sharp curvatures as well. So you can understand that if you have a flat one by one sort of uh, rigid sensor, that's not going to work very well. So we needed to do something about it. And that something was basically uh, introduce the macro patterning. So making this almost like a 3D sort of, well, you've seen the pins before, those are millimeter sized pins. In this case, we do micron-sized pins. Of course, we still need to cover that with graphene because graphene is our, in fact, is our electrode. So how do we do that? And this is very, you know, straightforward based on, on our uh, uh, platform, but also based on microfabrication capabilities for that, that are available uh, uh, to researchers. 
So what we do is we we start with uh, silicon carbide on silicon. Remember, the silicon carbide is is basically what we use to make graphene. We pattern the silicon carbide, and we pattern, for example, as as pillars or different shapes. The shapes can be so. If you sorry, I'm, I'm looking at figure number one now at the moment. If you can go there, of the of the second paper. So you do lithography, micro-sized lithography, and you can, you know, you can really have an idea. You could could do many different types of shapes, different densities, different sizes. Uh, there's a whole range of things you can look at, but that's how we do it. Let's suppose we do pillars. So you go down, the pillars are formed, and then we, we after lithography, we do what is called the etching, so selective removal of the material. And so we form these pillars. These pillars are, in this case, they are kind of uh, 10 microns thick and a few microns uh, 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 wide. That's uh, more or less the, the sizes that we'll be using here. And uh, these pillars are made mostly of uh, silicon, but then the tip is made of silicon carbide. And that's the important thing, because the silicon carbide, then the, the surface of the silicon carbide, we can transform that into graphene. And so in the end, you see the, the second last uh, uh, um, schematic. We have these pins that have like a tip covered by graphene. And those are our electrodes. And then this is how, in the end, you see the picture, how they look top down from, from a simple microscope. So these are our micro-sized features. They can be made also th thicker, of course, if you want. That's, uh, that was just our first preliminary uh, uh, attempt. And we made different sizes and different shapes and different, you know, this was our first uh, approach. We really wanted to understand a little bit more how we could use those. Um, so if you go to perhaps um, um, this figure two, no, let's go to the next one. Let's go to figure, um, yeah, this one, the figure three. Figure three uh, was where we wanted to, to uh, basically compare the different shapes and, and, and designs that we came up with. And the very interesting thing is that, whereas you see in the D, figure 3D, this is the test on the skin, on, on the forehead, sorry. So on the forehead, that, that flat area of the scalp. And usually um, this corresponds, so the better impedance, the lower, so the more, how can you say, the larger the area covered by graphene, the lower the impedance. And this is understandable because the graphene is the part that is really conductive, that makes good contact with the skin, and, and of course, it should have the best impedance, right? best meaning the, the lowest. And this is how it goes. However, when we start looking at other uh, uh, um, at, at, uh, impedances, in on the occipital region of the skull and by the way i need to dis uh, put a disclaimer here our user that you see also in the picture had an almost shaped head so it had hair but the hair was just five millimeter long so very very short hair um so you can see uh, from the table number one so if you go up a little bit from the figure three you go you see table number one and again, you can see you you have here for the different designs, the different sensors, the different designs, the different area. 
on the top is, is the pool area, so one, one centimeter square, and then the other ones are, are have less and less graphene. Um, and as I said before, you see the column here on skin impedance on the forehead. The the total the largest the total area and the lowest is impedance. But when you do the, make the contact on the occipital area of the head, that is no longer true. Actually, uh, the the flat graphene sensors that have the largest area of graphene have one of the highest impedances. And that's where the trick comes, is because the, the, the that region is really different. And because of the curvature of the, of the, of the skull, uh, a flat sensor would not work as well. And that's where we are really still working to refine that more and more. But we found that, for example, those uh, uh, um, that design that had uh, like an hexagonal shape, which is in figure two uh, uh, A, so the number I, just the first one, those were some that that was the design that really gave us the best compromise between the total area of the graphene and enough you know, space in between to accommodate for that very short hair and, and the contact with the skin. So that worked the best for us. And those were the ones that we used for the full demonstration. So, and then we go to figure four. Um, so we don't have a, you know, yet but we'll, we'll develop that in the, in the second part of this project we don't have yet a very nice uh, a helmet for for this purpose so at the moment all we we we, we could do is uh, we, we use a swimming cap as you can see uh, on figure four and we use that to host basically our sensors and the sensor you can see the non b so that that part is a part in contact with with the skin and now um uh, the development of the helmet will be really, really important because at the moment, most helmets that are available for this type of work are helmets that are, are using very thick sensors and the, like the ones with the pins and such. And those uh, uh, helmets, of course, don't work very well with, with these ones. These ones are extremely thin. And very importantly, and that we got also as a feedback from our users in the army, the users of the army, the, the surgeons that we were working with, they use both the pin sensors as well as these uh, um, micro pattern sensors. And they told us that after, you know, uh, even five, 10 minutes of using that, that helmet with the pin sensors, they would start having almost a migraine because unfortunately those pins really push into the, into the uh, scalp because they have to maintain uh, uh, a good contact throughout. So that's that's the reason. Contact um, uh, is really not having any air gap in between the, the, the sensors and the skin is absolutely key. Now, what we can do with these micro pattern sensors is also that we can push them um, as much as we do with the with the other pin, the, the commercial pin sensors. But that does not result in having a headache because these are micro sort of, uh, so the distribution of the stress and, 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 and the whole you know, load on the sensor is completely different. You won't get these, these things almost you know, uh, pushing through your skull like you get uh, uh, in, the other, in, in the case of the pin sensors. So basically also from a user perspective, these sensors are, you can keep them for a longer time without well, first of all, they don't degrade in saline in a highly saline solution, but they're also more comfortable 
However, we will have to develop a much better and much more adequate sort of uh, helmet that goes with that. Uh, figure five. Figure five shows basically how we applied this. This is in the lab. Uh, we, we didn't, uh, uh, so in this, this paper was focused on what we did in the lab, not necessarily what we did outside in the, in the, um, together with the army. But this, this is basically the platform that we were using here is, is a robotic dog from Ghost Robotics from, from Boston that we had on, on, on loan from them. And so we developed the, the interfaces with that robotic dog. And um, basically the sensors are, if you look at figure 5G, the sensors are, you can see the blue swimming cap, basically, you can almost see that underneath the, the, the helmet. This helmet, in fact, is only used in this case to push those sensors against the skull. It's just applied pressure. The actual, uh, the actual sensors are embedded in that swimming cap that you saw before. As I said, putting pressure, making sure that there is no air gap is absolutely essential. And this is why you really need the spikes and this, this uh, micro patterning on the back of the head. Now, how does this work? Um, SSVP works, it's one of the, the, the uh, paradigms that you can use with least training. Because in fact, what happens, you, you see this in C, you see these six uh, rectangle or squares, basically. These squares, each of them represents one command that uh, the user can transmit to the robotic platform. For example, go forward, stop, go left, go right, different things, pre-arranged pre, pre, uh, um, uh, specific commands. And uh, now, so how does the user choose? The user uh, gazes at one specific command. And basically, each of these this, uh, uh, squares flicker. But they flicker slightly different frequency. And this is a the very important point because basically the discrimination between those frequencies is exactly what we pick up here on the back from the sensors on the back of the of the of the of the head. So basically that frequency is picked up and it's harmonics. And then of course the classification, you know, uh, the, the the decoder will will run the algorithm on the spectrum, identify the frequency, uh, 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 do some, some form of, of redundant uh, check, error check, and then transform that, do classification and transform that into, decode the basic intent and transform it into a command that is wirelessly uh, transmitted to the robotic platform. This is basically how it works. Why is this the least in uh, really the least uh, type of training uh, uh, um, possible is because in fact uh, just uh, the action of the user in uh, gazing onto one of these different squares um, gives an immediate signal through the visual cortex and there is no further processing that the person has to do in fact it just has to gaze onto one of the of the chosen uh, uh, um, commands, and and of course that's important because of course if you want to use this system for different people and you don't want to necessarily train all the people all the time, you know, taking a lot of training can take a lot of time. Personal training is you know it's in the combat you don't necessarily want to do that. 
So really, we decided to go for that type of, uh, of paradigm. But of course, there's different paradigms, and different paradigms serve different purposes. So basically, at the end of the story here, and approaching the end, is that when we used the graphene sensors, uh, exactly in the way that, uh, so we had here eight graphene sensor channels on, on the back of the head, uh, why do, did we put eight? Well, we could put less, we could put more. In fact, eight gave us a sort of better, uh, you know, uh, uh, signal in terms of better accuracy as well. Um, in principle, you could do even just with one, but you need some redundancy in order to, to be able, not all channels work well at all the time. So basically the need of, of multiple channels is because of the need for redundancy, which in turn, of course, improves also the accuracy. And so with a combination of our sensors and the uh, algorithms developed by CT, our collaborators, we were able to uh, obtain an accuracy of about 95% in our in this preliminary study, which is maybe using this very rudiment, rudimental sort of helmet um, uh, design. Yeah, you know, these are the first designs, but there's still a lot of things that we can do to optimize those designs and such. So we were extremely happy. We had really demonstration. We had some videos where we show uh, our colleague Daniel here moving the, uh, the, the robotic platform just with his thought, which was really fantastic to see. Of course, when he puts on the silver chloride uh, uh, sensors, he gets 100% of accuracy. Huh? And uh, but remember, that what we are trying to do is to make those sensors as good as possible, as close as to possible to the uh, silver chloride, so that we are able to make all the system really portable. I think I talked a lot, <laughs> so Katerina, maybe I should stop here and, and give the chance to people to ask questions, you know, make comments and, you know, whatever, whatever they, they feel like. Yeah, thank you so much. This was uh, really wonderful um, how you explained um the design and you know the comparison of the different uh, systems what uh you know the reasoning and then also um then the the really amazing result of like 95 percent accuracy is is really very impressive and um so yeah let's let's start uh with some questions um if uh, people want to come up to the stage, feel free uh, to come. I know Eric and Dr. Shah are here already. And um, we're actually Eric, let me, I invited you to speak Eric. So yeah, now it worked, perfect. Um, so let me hand over the microphone to Dr. Shah and Eric, because I know we have five minutes left and then in the end, if I have time, I'll ask a question. Okay, uh, go ahead. Thank you. Hey. Thank you so much for your wonderful talk. That was very informative. My question from you, uh, it's about the HVG sensors and which other areas of the brain uh, it, uh, it can have a use. For example, when we want to consider the auditory uh, area or for example, um, language centers. Can we use this HVEG and with the considering of the long-term reliability also as well as the interference and noises? 
Thanks for your question. So um, I I do hope so. I do hope so. We did not test in the in those areas, of course, because we didn't have the reason for doing that um, so far. But uh, uh, what I expect is is that probably you know different areas will will require a little bit more of fine tuning in terms also of how what what type of designs fit best with that with the area as well. As I showed before, there's a big difference between what we can use in the forehead and what we can use with the back. Um, but I should hope so, yes, that uh, that there should be a possibility to adapt those sensors also to, to other areas like uh, auditory areas and such. And we would be very, very happy to, you know, to collaborate with uh, 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 colleagues that, that are interested in that uh, type of application. And as long as that was an invasive BMI, if I believe, right? When you're talking about the B, uh, BMI, so you think that if we can use it in those areas, how the BMI it might change? So this one, uh, so we, we are only working with wearables, of course. Uh, so we can only, you know, place the sensors in areas, yeah, yeah, on, in correspondence with the with the core, the area of the cortex that we are focusing on, um, you mean with invasive sensors? Uh, we cannot clearly, uh, as I said before, the wearables, EEG based sensors and in, um, and implantable sensors are doing things that are pretty complementary. So ECOG as well, like the the, the sensor that are placed directly on the cortex, they have a much much better. Um, signal like the signals that we are reading out are in the in the order of microvolts so really tiny of course if you have ecog uh, uh, intercortical uh, um, uh, sort of sensors that sit on the cortex they have much higher sort of signal and much better as uh, temporal and spatial resolution so of course there's always that you know, it always depends on uh, on the granularity and the precision of the response you're looking for. So um, there will be always things that we cannot do from the outside. Uh, but but I think as we improve the type of sensors, we, we can certainly push some boundaries. Thank you so much for your responses. Yeah, thank you. Um, Eric, did you have a question? Uh, yeah, um, my question was more about the, I guess, the tuning of the surface. Uh, was there any tuning involved to perhaps reduce the uh, reflections from the surface itself? Um, I know uh, when uh, our team has looked at that, uh, that's been kind of annoying. But the interesting thing is that some antennas, some shapes or metamaterials, in some instances, lend themselves to uh, canceling out some of those reflections. So we found that to be useful. Did you... Um, if by chance you explored that or if you had a comment about that. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. This is a, yeah, this is an interesting point. To be honest, um, at the moment we haven't, we haven't looked at that yet. Um, there could be, yeah, there could be something that we could, yeah, we could look into and see yeah. if we can perhaps improve better, improve even more. Um, but no, I, I, I'd like to 
I'd like to hear more about that. If yeah, yeah. Any I can, I can give you more information. Or... So using a vector network analyzer, you can measure the impedance <laughs> of uh, those kinds of measurements. So you have four kinds of measurements. You have the measurement of the cable uh, from the output of the cable to where your sensor is, and then another cable on the other side, oh, kind okay. of yeah. si yeah. signing that yeah. off, right? So, so mm -hmm. the, yeah, the yeah, yeah, I understand it's a system level sort of, uh, yeah. Um, I think, as, as I said, there's probably a lot more we can do in that, in that area. At the moment, we have not really uh, optimized any of that, to be honest with you. Okay, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll pass on some information to uh, Katarina because it does improve the signal uh, quality significantly if you're able to remove some of those um, uh, uh, properties uh, or aspects of the signal. Um, so, um, yeah, and, and in general, the military uses this in their sensors. So it's it's quite a common technique if uh, if you take a closer look. But yeah. Oh, fantastic! Thanks for that. Yeah, thank you so much, Eric. And um, Hari Kumar, did you have a question? We have, actually, I have to ask you, Francesca, if you have time for one more question. Sure, sure, yeah. go okay. ahead. Go. Okay, thank you, go ahead, Hari Kumar. Could you hear me? Did I press accidentally on mute on Kapas? Oh, yeah, go ahead, thank you. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we yes. can hear you. So yeah, uh, so do you, I mean, do you see any difference in sensitivity for higher frequencies comparing the conventional EEG system? So does this graphene-based system, do they show any higher sensitivity for high frequency of electric potential differences? Um, so yeah, I mean, are you talking about if there is any distortion or do I understand correctly what you I mean? mean? Uh, so the skull act as a low pass filter for the signal that's like the difference between yeah. ECOG and EEG is that skull act as a low pass filter. So that's one thing about EEG, it cannot, uh, it cannot have high spatial frequency. In the sense that's the reason the spatial frequency of the EEG system itself is very low. That's the reason why we keep EEG sensors very far apart because keeping them very close together doesn't give you much uh, better results because the spatial frequency itself is very low. But yes. there may be, uh, even though skull is a low pass filter, there may be some higher frequencies that is coming out of skull, but it might have a very less amplitude. So these graphene sensors uh, having their own high conductivity index, are they sensitive to uh, bit higher frequencies of the signal comparing the conventional electrodes. Uh, Look, we, we, we focused, so far we focused just uh, on, on the, you know, the, the lower end of frequencies, but if anything, graphene is definitely expected to, I mean, is, is one of the materials that is expected to behave really well at high frequency. Um, yeah. Graphene itself. Then of course yeah. you have the substrate that could potentially introduce any any some some problems because the silicon you know it's depending on on the frequency you're talking about of course uh what, what high frequencies for you is uh, what 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 range i mean uh what will be the maximum frequency that we can detect in the conventional ones and it will be on the gamma range right mm, 
I, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Um, we, as I said, at the moment, it's not something we really looked into. Okay. But, um, what higher frequency? I mean, but as I said, uh, graphene would not. Well, we we're even using graphene at terahertz frequencies. So graphene, in terms of frequencies, is definitely not going to be the bottleneck at all. If anything, yeah. there could be a little bit more distortion from the silicon, uh, yeah. depending on what frequencies we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, so that's the question. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for the questions. And um, I the the yeah. one question I I had was if you considering like a multi-modal um, brain or sensory information like. And if you are planning also to have like feedback information uh, for maybe improve, I mean, it's already 90, 95% accuracy, but maybe for more complex movements in like a, a real world uh -huh. behavior, if like feedback uh, information on the skin or, or electric information, if you're planning to do sure. Yeah. sure. Now, Katharina, that's a very good point. In fact, you know, um, the accuracy right now, we were very happy because this is honestly is our preliminary test. There, there's a lot more we, we need to improve on, as I said before. And uh, and also the accuracy was based on these six commands. So it's not a huge amount of commands. And, and we have a certain latency. Uh, what we like to do is to have to reduce that latency as much as possible and increase the amount of commands. So it's going to be quite a challenge, of course. So everything we can we can improve, uh, uh, we will certainly do. And in terms of multifunctionalities, absolutely, this is something that definitely we would like to to explore. Uh, potentially, also, you know, if if necessary, some possibility for stimulation, uh, some possibility of, of uh, uh, also integrating with some optical uh, 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 systems as well. We're working on on metasurfaces based on 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 uh, graphene and silicon carbide that has not, you know, that part of the story hasn't come up into the sensors at all at the moment, but certainly in the future, that's where, where we're going. So um, that's that's why we're using silicon basically is because although it's rigid, it really gives a lot more capabilities in terms of uh, uh, um, combining different functionalities. Yeah. I hope that answered your question. Yes. Of course, yeah, it's it's really um, it's really interesting, and uh, I'm very excited to read in the future your work that will come out of your lab because uh, it's such an interesting field and evolving quite fast with, I guess, all the technology um, and machine learning uh, you can you can use to analyze also all the data. So. Uh, thank you so much for coming. I hope we went, we are still okay. I know we went a little bit over the time and um, it was really a great pleasure and honor to have you here. And I hope we'll hear you maybe one day in the future again and you enjoyed it a little bit. <laughs> thank you. That would be nice. Katerina, thanks a lot. And thanks a lot to everyone who yeah, cannot meet in person, but uh, thanks for, for listening to me. Oh, thank you. It was a great talk. Thank you. Bye-bye.
Bye. Thank you, Francesca. Bye. Have a good evening. Bye. And thank you so much, everyone, for coming, asking questions. We'll have our next room on Wednesday, the science news updates. And then on Thursday, uh, Professor uh, Mike Levin, um, he will come back uh, for people who don't know him. He's the uh, researcher that developed these xenobots and other like organic bots and, and all and a lot of more uh, new technology and uh, who also releases work about um, new concept of a mind that we kind of have to change that because the mixture of minds will be will vary in the future a lot we will be maybe 90% human 10% technology or even more mixtures so the concept of mind will also be discussed will be usually he's coming back the fourth time if you want to listen to replays from previous rooms before but it will be a really interesting discussion we'll get updates what's going on in his lab and uh, the latest uh, publications he has a very fast pace <laughs> getting publications out so and they're always really interesting so anyways thank you so much everyone i had to stream through my account today but uh, you can check out the profile of our speaker from today in the chat i shared the profile and the lab website and uh, yeah, I hope to hear you all again uh, soon. Thank you. Close the room in three, two, one. Bye everyone, thank you.